in the civilian world, nobody cares about that. All they care about is the so what. What are you going to do for me? So you may write in a resume bullet, I was in charge of a program of $9.8 million, uh, 5,200 Marines with a successful deployment or something like that, right? The first thing HR or hiring manager is going to say, so what does that mean to me? So what? From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Jason Hamilton, CISO at Mutual of Omaha. Jason spent 22 years as an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps before choosing the private sector. He built a strong foundation of technical and leadership skills during his military tenure. However, it was mentorship and initiative that led him to success as a CISO. Today, he talks us through his tips for transitioning into the civilian workforce. The military teaches invaluable skills, but they don't always translate directly to the corporate world. So what key lessons do veterans need to learn before venturing out of their time in service? Does HR understand or even care about something such as rank? And how should you make the most of a civilian mentor? Okay, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. If you would, please introduce yourself. Yep. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for having me here this morning. I truly appreciate it. My name is Jason Hamilton. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for Mutual of Omaha. I've been at the company a little over five years, and prior to that, I'm a retired uh, United States Marine. So let's go all the way back to your time in the Corps. You've been at Mutual of Omaha for five years, but you said you had a fairly long career. How many years were you in the Corps? Uh, 22 years. And that's all active duty? That's correct. Wow. And when you started, what was, so 22 plus the five, roughly, how old were you when you uh, signed up to go in? So I was commissioned a second lieutenant right out of college, and that would have been in 1997, roughly. I was part of the reserves for about two years prior to that while I was in college. Okay. I wasn't aware they had, so it was like ROTC or? Yep, correct. So you went right in. So you go in with a commission. What did you start doing? What was your first sort of mission in the Marine Corps? Yes, my first assignment, I was classified as a communication and information systems officer. So in the Marine Corps, what that means is think push to talk radio. So satellite radio, AF, FM, basically allowing grunt units to shoot, move, and communicate to destroy the enemy. So my job was to make sure they could communicate, call in medevacs call in reinforcements, call in air support and things like that, call in artillery support. So my first assignment was to actually a support group down in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And my role there was I was a specifically a radio platoon commander within the 2nd Marine Division. That was my first job. Now, for those that didn't serve in the military or may not be as familiar, like as an officer with that assignment, is it more about understanding the technology or technical capabilities? Is it more about logistics? Is it staff development? Is it all the above? Like, what do you think 
in order to be great at that, what is required of you to be great at? What, what's the things that you had to bring to the table in that? I'm building some foundation kind of statements here as we move your way to CISO. So what makes that successful? Or if you're not a good officer and that's what, what were the things that you might do or not do? Yeah, that's a great question. So your primary duty and role should be, I'm not saying this always happens, but should be to learn, you know, and, and define and refine your leadership skills. That That's truly what you're any second lieutenant and any entry-level officer in, in any military organization or service should do. The reason why I say that is because oftentimes what happens, depending on what your MO, MOS is, your, your, your skill set, what you try to do is you try, so for me, I was in a technical, essentially, military specialty. So thinking that I had to know everything, right? Walking in there and having a platoon of 68 Marines you know, several staff and CEOs who essentially have been in the Marine Corps double, you know, at least almost 10, 10 to 12 years. And I've been in the Marine Corps less than a year, right? So to go in there and try to impress your Marines is probably the wrong option. So the true nirvana would be to rely on your staff and CEOs, rely on your Marines because they know what they're doing. Your job is to make sure that you're putting around the guardrails and providing the vision for them and uh, identifying those obstacles to help them get there. But that doesn't always doesn't always work out that way. So yeah, and and I think that there's a parallel that I see that's also a flaw in the civilian side. Specifically when you move into leadership in information security, manager director and even CISO where they believe their mission individually is to be technically proficient. Now, I would say if you're not technically, if you don't know what the hell's going on, you're going to have trouble. But to be that expert or to try to impress on that front, I think is a is a wonderful recipe for failure because of all of what it takes you away from, which is just what you mentioned. You mentioned vision and leadership and removal of barriers. So what's interesting to hear you say that is it sounds like that the scales are sort of equally weighted seemingly from that example, both sometimes with a new lieutenant and also with sometimes new or even seasoned security executives. Would you would you say that stand pressure test or am I off? Nope, 100% correct. The only difference is the scope. You know, as, as you increase in the military and as you increase in the corporate world, scope gets bigger. So you have to be able to manage very efficiently. Yeah, I guess I would leave it at that. So, I mean, there is a difference between management and le- leadership. Leadership doesn't change. You just get better at it, hopefully, right? Not worse. So, but management, uh, your scope just increases. That's all. I think the reason behind some of it, I, I can't speak for the Marine Corps. You know, I come from a military family, but I, I can't speak specifically because I was never in it. But in on the civilian side, I, I can speak to it. And what I have seen or what used to occur is people either being the best technician, getting vacuumed up into leadership. We've talked about this in the show before. And so their their real passion is the technology, not necessarily the the team building. Or they are chasing maybe a title and just don't give a damn about the rest of it. And so you kind of have these two conditions that end up causing the creation of poorly led and managed and operating teams. I don't know what if there is an analog into what you're talking about. 
But I think that the lessons you just shared or the reasons I think help sort of build the foundation of the journey of your career that I want to help build. Is there anything else you talk about in that, that early, early days, junior officer, any leadership observations that you had then that were a surprise to you that you didn't expect? Yeah. So I don't believe there's such thing as a perfect leader. I don't care where you sit, if you're just getting into that business or if you've been doing it for 30, 40 years, everybody makes mistakes. I think the key is, especially when you're young and you're getting into that business, you have to learn from those mistakes. You can't make those mistakes twice or you're not going to make it. You're just not going to make it in the organization. And especially in the Marine Corps, everyone's going to see through that. So, And that's really no different in the corporate world either. I just think you know, in the corporate world and where I sit today, I can make a mistake. But I think perhaps due to the awesome team I have around me, they can help get me out of that if I, if I do that. And that's, that's natural, right? Uh, whereas, you know, as a second lieutenant, you're being tested and, and, and rightfully so, right? Because you're, you're expected to lead men into combat and bring them home alive. Right, right. The stakes are very different, especially typically the places that uh, the Marine Corps gets sort of sent in to do their work. It's often sometimes the most difficult places to be in. And so the stakes are, are very high. And all of what your mission was in that aspect, if you don't have communications, if you can't sort of move, if you don't know information related to the, the state of the battlefield, you know, terrible things can happen, right? So that's an absolute critical system. Not too dissimilar in another way, Unrelated, but when I hear people that work in healthcare that are responsible for sort of the backbone of the hospital, right? The the mission there is if those systems aren't up and running, there's a a similar kind of gravity to the situation. Different mission, but the weight is very similar, as, as they would say or they would they would allude to. How did your job change when you were uh, as you as you moved up, and did you always stick with that MOS, or did that evolve into something different as as you progressed? Relatively, the job category or the title didn't change much. I guess what did change was when I first came into the Marine Corps back in the early 90s. So information technology or data was always kind of a separate thing compared to the job role I had. I think it was at that point the Marine Corps decided to combine those. So I probably, you know, the point at which I became a captain I, I fought it off as much as I could because I didn't want to be one of the IT geeks. I wanted to be somebody who, who supported, like I said before, you know, the units that called in fire and things like that. And then I quickly realized that that's not how this is going to work as I get if I want to stay in this gun club based on my, my job role. So the long and short of it is I had to get very smart on, uh, on data and how to, how to move data across the battlefield uh, very quickly. And you had asked a question of kind of, you know, what was my next role? So pretty much after my first tour, you know, a couple of deployments out of the Camp Lejeune, moved around to a couple of different units, things like that. I took on an instructor role. So not only did I have to uh, get smart on data, now I had to turn around and sit there and teach it to <laughs> brand new second lieutenants on how all that worked. And I had to get real smart real fast. Uh, I just happened to be in the Quantico, Washington, D.C. area where there's very good training on the civilian side. And I took advantage of that. So to make sure those lieutenants got the most current up-to-date knowledge. So unpack that for me. You said you had to get smart on data. Are you talking about route switch type, like actual communication, like data networks, like IP routing versus 
sort of satellite microwave, that kind of thing. Okay, so early 90s or in the 90s, there's this transition. Now you need to become more knowledgeable on this topic, which is a big jump if you've never done that. It's like old day Signal Corps versus my uncle. Well, great uncle was Signal Corps, old army Signal Corps in the Second World War. And he talked about uh, it was literally just running oftentimes like running cable. And then, of course, your world was satellite microwave and probably other stuff, directional antennas, these sorts of things. And now you're making this this quantum leap. So you took civilian classes so then you could then go through and train other lieutenants? I did. That's correct. So um, as the MOS combined, when I was going through that process, I think perhaps because of deployments and different units I was in, I probably missed out on some of the Marine Corps training on that just because it takes time to catch that pipeline up, right? It's a machine and it's a big machine. So it takes time to catch that up and everybody doesn't just stop to get educated on something. So you got to start picking it up along the way. So when I arrived in Quantico as an instructor, I did not know a lot of that information. So um, I would read our manuals and things like that. But I also knew, you know, I'm not far from some real uh, heavy hitters when it comes to technology in the Beltway. So I just went to the boss and said, hey, I'll pay for it if I have to or if the Marine Corps can pay for it. But I'd like to go take these training classes because this technology we're using to pass data across the battlefield is civilian technology. Yeah, we used to call it white gear back then. So why wouldn't I not go just straight to the source right, and get that information and get that training? So that's what I did. So if you'd ever seen this before, now you're reading about packet headers and you're looking at probably something at the time like Ethereal, which later became Wireshark, and trying to understand, did you look at that and think, what the hell did I get myself into? Or, or was it like, hey, this is exciting or somewhere in between? Probably somewhere in between. I remember when they were assigning the classes for that we had five instructors at the time, and I was probably one of the junior ones when I first got there. So they're like, hey, just so you know, this this next round for the next class, you get to teach IP subnetting. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, you, you have to teach it manually, how they how to do it manually. I'm like, we have calculators that do that. And they're like, yeah, but they have to understand the basics behind it, just like when you're in grade school, right? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so I had to get smart on that quick. Yeah, that's slash 24. And there's a lot to that. So this is so this is the next step, which I think is good foundational of understanding and sort of, again, paving the foundational understanding. What'd you do after? So your data network, you're having to, you're doing teaching, you're still in the core, you're probably, this sounds like it's probably five years in. Yep. Okay. So you're five years in roughly, we, you were in 22. Let's fast forward a little bit. What, how did this, did it stay kind of on that data specific or did it evolve beyond that uh, into other areas? Yeah, so the, the data stayed with me for the rest of my career, but as I continue to rise through different levels of the Marine Corps and continue on my career, then all of a sudden the Marine Corps decided, hey, there's this thing called cyber. We used to call it information assurance in the government. And to be honest, I left the schoolhouse and went to a regimental combat team, went to Fallujah for 14 months, and I had an information, I had two information assurance Marines assigned to me. And I, I remember meeting them for the first time and I asked them, what the hell do you do? And they were talking about, you know, security patching of routers and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll do that when we find time to do it, but that's not our priority here, right? So then 
you know, as I continued my career on, I started to serve on staff levels where information insurance really started to become more important. And then, of course, everybody dubbed this, you know, started calling it cyber. And, and I think the Marine Corps leadership at that time figured out there's only a couple areas in which you can truly get guaranteed money for the service. And as long as it's important and one of our priorities, we, had, we need to go after that. And, that. and at that time, it was special operations and cyber. So we started down that road. So therefore, I started down that road. So I just fast forwarded probably 10 years in that career. But that's essentially how that worked out. Interesting. So you're now, you, you go from what the hell do you guys do and their information assurance, whatever that is, right? And I, I assume probably two more junior enlisted men, like probably not even, were they even NCOs or were they in, I mean, were these, were these brand new, like fresh out of some class somewhere or were they more senior folks when they were explaining to you they were the, there to patch the router? Yeah, they were, uh, if I recall, I think one was a they were both NCOs. I think one was corporal, one was a sergeant. I remember the sergeant specifically because he and I would bump heads a little bit because, again, I was in a combat zone and my priority was to maintain command and control for a unit that was there for a specific mission. And patching a router wasn't high on my priority list, right? So, again, a lot of that was probably my lack of education at the time in the space. I guarantee that was most of it, but also... Like I said, I was there for a mission and that wasn't, that wasn't it, but higher headquarters thought that was important that we needed to do that. And I said, okay, we'll fit it in when I, when I think it's right. So at the time you're roughly, are you still captain Hamilton at this point? Uh, at that point, I probably just picked up major. Okay. So major Hamilton, this is not too dissimilar from conversations. I mean, there's probably a lot of people smiling as they listen to this. It's not too dissimilar than, you know, you have a CISO reporting to maybe a CIO and you have performance and availability, availability being a shared goal, but performance and availability top of mind for the CIO. And then you have sort of, you know, security at the most foundational elements being top of mind for the CISO and these sorts of the friction that's caused. So it's interesting that this was something similar being discussed amongst these two NCOs and you at the time related to patching a router or whatever other kind of maintenance. Do you reflect on that now on the gravity or the, the similarities maybe? I do reflect on that now. And in fact, it's funny, I've had a couple of Marines who have since, you know, gotten out as of I obviously, and they sat at those higher headquarters and, and, they, and they remind me sometimes on little private LinkedIn messages or whatever. Like, I remember a time when you fought this entire thing and now look at you, you're leading this effort for a Fortune 300 company. So it's extremely ironic. So you're probably, if you just picked up major, and I'm going to make a generalization, you're roughly 13, 14, 15 years in at this point-ish? Uh, somewhere in the, probably around 10 years. 10? Okay. So, well, you were well-behaved and you did well. You moved up quick. So you're in there. How does then, if it's 10 and you're in 22, Take us through, because I want to get closer to today, but where in, in, those, in the last 10 years, you're getting introduced into security. You go from who the hell are you to now starting to probably take more an interest in it over time. What are these last 10 or 12 years like in the core? And do you have more of a, a security focus in that block of time? Yeah, I would say just kind of grouping some things. At that point, when you reach that level in the in the Marine Corps, probably any service, 
you have to start looking to broaden your horizons to understand things at a higher level. So probably for those out in the audience that have served some time in the military would understand it's time for you to go learn the joint community. It's no longer about the Marine Corps. It's about DOD and what other services bring to the table. And then we have geographical command commanders that bring all that together. So after, you know, some stints at schools, they send you off to get a master's up at the Naval War College, things like that. I did a joint tour with Special Operations Command, and I had to kind of serve at that level. And it was more about planning, operational and strategic level planning. But then after that, I think uh, just transitioning here to my last tour before I retired, I I was at a strategic command out here in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, a Marine component whereby it was purely a cyber role for my last several years. You've had, I mean, look, I got to admit, it probably all wasn't as clean as, as you're sort of describing it here, but I can tell you that many other veterans I've had on officers, certainly, that what I've at least heard through this is that you had a a hell of a setup in a good way of, I'm hearing, you know, you, you moved up through the ranks, you've had great foundational responsibilities, focus on leadership, you've got movement into, you know, additional education, additional command opportunities, transition from multiple technology types and different missions, this sounds like it was, I mean, from my perspective, a wonderful foundation for what you have transitioned into on the civilian side. Would you agree to that? I would 100% agree. I think, although when you're going through it at the time, you may not agree with some of the direction because you're not in charge. You just know they're called orders for a reason. They're not called options. And so sometimes you see those orders and like, what? I got to go where and do what? But then when I look back on that, I can tell you every single assignment that I had in in the Marine Corps helped set me up for success to transition, not only transition into the corporate world, but to excel in the corporate world. So I'm extremely appreciative of that. Let's spend a second on that, on the transition, because I want to take this two ways. One's more of a general theme and the other's specific to your experience at Mutual of Omaha and that transition. But in general, I don't know that everybody has the same either good foundation or good transition experience coming out of the service and not knocking anything, but it's not always roses making a transition at the point where your career is finished. Either you're in an up and out scenario or you decide to leave and you're trying to transition, especially into IT. Do you have any general feedback for the person who might be in service now or trying to transition in civilian life, just advice, feedback, inspiration for that person, that individual who might be struggling a little bit, might not feel like they've gotten all the tools either during their service or maybe they're trying to increase their capability and earning potential moving into the civilian side. Any feedback or perspective on that that you could share for all the people that listen? Sure. So I think every person in the military, regardless of where you sit in that organization, you know, the senior enlisted ranks, if you did one tour and there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that, everybody that serves time in the military, it's important. And regardless of the time you spent, so enlisted or officer, 
they make a decision at some point where is it time for me to leave. So when you go through that process, you know, depending where you sit on the organization, how long have you been in and things like that, you know, you have different options. I can only speak to my experience since, you know, I did it my entire adult life right out of college. So when I left there, I had basically two choices. Do I want to stay with the federal government and become some type of contractor or GS employee, or do I want to go into the corporate sector? You know, for me, I chose to go into the corporate sector. I knew it was a risk, but that was the line in the sand that I drew. The only reason for that is because I already knew what the other side looked like. I've served at a couple of combatant commands. I've worked with a lot of contractors and a lot of GS employees, and there's nothing absolutely wrong with them. They're extremely important to the Department of Defense. They're extremely important to the military. I just wanted something different. So I made that decision. Based on that, the advice I'd give to people who go down that road, there's a couple things. You need to learn to humble yourself. So the military has a way of showing you how important you are through fitness reports, you know, the way your system writes their reviews in the military, you know, the rank you get and, and, and things like that. Nothing wrong with that. It's important and it's valid and it's needed in a military command and control structure. In the corporate world, in the civilian, it doesn't work like that. So I knew that when I uh, was going to enter the corporate sector, you know, nobody gave two shits whether I was a lieutenant colonel. Nobody cared. Care less what my title was. And you know what? So be it. They shouldn't have cared. And um, it didn't take me long not to care either, too, right? So that would be my first bit of advice. My second bit of advice would probably be specifically when it comes to resume writing. You're used to reading or writing fitness report bullets. You know, for your service members, that doesn't it doesn't tell us so what. All it tells is what they were responsible for, the amount of money, you know, that they were responsible for, the, the number of troops they were responsible for, and kind of what that billet description looked like. In the civilian world, nobody cares about that. All they care about is the so what. What are you going to do for me? So you may write in a resume bullet, I was in charge of a program of $9.8 million of, you know, 5,200 Marines uh, with a successful, you know, deployment or something like that, right? The first thing uh, um, HR or hiring manager is going to say, so what does that mean to me? So what? If that makes sense to you. It does. And, and one of the things, this is actually a derivative of something my father used to say, who was an army officer. He was something... <laughs> Did some weird stuff a long time ago in Southeast Asia, but he was a part of something known as Phoenix Program. And he used to say, so what, now what? So you bring a problem to him or something. And, and I kind of carried that over a little bit into leadership where it's not meant to be cold. Like, so what sounds very cold sometimes, right? So what? But it's meant to say, if there's something presented in front of you or you are presenting something, so what? Like, what, what does it really mean? Like, let's, let's kind of like asking why a couple of times after, you know, they say, finding the root of an issue. And then now what? What are we going to do? So you've, you've brought me a problem. You've attempted to clarify it. Now what? What's your recommendation? How do we attack this? I'll let you know, we are not successful at this always on the civilian side either. But I think that I've heard this translation element come through many times with many guests on the show that are, or several that were in service. I think that's a valuable thing. And I think getting help, I don't know if, if that's offered as, as someone's transitioning out or if it just comes from getting involved in the community or university help or good mentorship, but that is absolutely a, a needed sort of that, that retrofitting of your resume and your career to a consumable civilian side is, is, uh, 
are there even resources out there to help with this? Or is this something that you do just through the community or organically? Or are you even aware, per, I'm putting you on the spot, but are you even aware of any resources for that? I am. That's a great question. And that's the next piece of this, right? So I could sit here and tell you, don't do this. But then the listener is like, okay, so what do I do? <laughs> so it is, it is completely 100% about mentorship and networking. You know, when I went through the retirement process, I was extremely, extremely lucky. You go through a, a program called TAPS, uh, the Transition you know, Assistance Program. Every service member does, regardless of how long you spent in the military. However, when I retired from Offutt Air Force Base, there was a program that they had just started called Excel with a Mentor. And uh, you had to apply for it. And I was chosen for it. I think I had to write like an essay or something. I can't remember all the details. But essentially, the gist of it is what they do is, you know, I basically, I think during the essay that I wrote, I had to basically explain this is what I'm looking for. And, I'm, and to keep this short, I basically said I'm looking for, you know, probably somewhere between a mid-level to upper-level management job in IT in the corporate world, something like that, right? Specifically, probably around cyber. So they gave me a couple choices because there was this partnership through Fortune 500 companies in the Omaha uh, metro area here in Nebraska, where they partnered with the base on this program. So they gave me a couple options. And each one of those individuals that partakes in that from a mentor perspective provides a bio. So I looked at this individual's bio, and it happened to be the chief information security officer from Mutual of Omaha. And he was a retired Air Force veteran. And I'm like, yep. This is the guy I want to partner with right here. He He's going to get it, right? So I asked and we got paired up. And so we had a about an a eight, eight to 12 month relationship before I even retired. And to be clear to the audience here, this was not about me getting a job. It had nothing to do with that. This was about an individual who went through the same process I had 20 years before I did and how the corporate world works and some of the soft skills that are required in the corporate world and how to make that transition. And it was extremely helpful for me. I was very beneficial to be a part of the program. I will tell you, based probably on some unforeseen and unfortunate circumstances, there was an opening presented itself at Mutual, and that's how I landed here. I was kind of a known quantity through that program. But again, that was not the point of the program to get me a job. And that was very clear on both sides when uh, you know you kind of sign the paperwork and you get into that program. So uh, that's, but that's how I, I landed here. So to your original question of, are there resources out there? Yes, there are resources out there. Today, there's a program, I, I don't I don't know how old it is, but I'm pretty sure it's relatively in its infancy, but it's, it's gaining steam. It's called DOD Skillbridge. And what this program is about, it allows service members to spend the last six months of their time in the service, if the, obviously, if the service and the commander agrees to spend time working full-time for uh, in the corporate world and still getting paid by the military to do so. And what that does is it, teach them, it teaches them key critical skill sets and knowledge and on-the-job training in a corporate environment. They also get to learn the corporate norms, like those soft skills and how to translate those. Oh, and by the way, they get corporate mentorship. Again, there is no commitment or contract to hire that individual on either part. So both parties know that going in. It's just giving back to the community and giving back to our veterans and service members. You know, for those that want to go in the corporate world, this is what that looks like, and we're here to help you. And I think it's it's a great program. Uh, myself, I'm leading that effort for Mutual of Omaha to get us into that program. In fact, two weeks ago, I filled out the application, and, and I'm just now starting down that path. That's fantastic. I'm sure some of this gets a little more on the lighter side, but you talk about norms. Obviously, 
getting paired up with somebody who was prior service, I know that was a, an immediate point of connection. I can tell even by the way you described it, but I would assume even if he wasn't prior service, that there still would have been a lot of value in that relationship because of the topic of the norms. And for those that don't know, and this is more for the non-military hiring manager or senior person, what are some examples of some norms that maybe need to get right-sized in that sort of transition? I'm guessing language on several levels was one. And I wasn't talking about necessarily being vulgar, but like that's one of them, right? Is probably tone is another one too, right? I mean, that's another, you know, when you're given an order on something, I've received enough from my father in the past where you kind of know, right? It's real direct. It's, and even though I wasn't in, it's like, hey, like, get it done now. Like, there's no talking about it. Like, it's just, and you don't, it, things don't work that way in larger companies. So you want to walk us through just a couple of the highlights on that, just for the person who might be hiring and, hey, they got a veteran coming in, they might be fresh out. Any, anything there you'd share? Yeah, I think every veteran goes through a, a culture shock for those who trans, transition directly into the corporate world, specifically when we talk about corporate culture and HR norms and things like that. You know, most people that come out of the military are type A personalities. Not everybody in the corporate world is a type A personality, and you need to recognize that because, believe it or not, there are other personality styles that do get results besides type A. You just don't know and are not used to that because you've never seen anything other than that, right? And, and that's okay because that serves its purpose in the military culture, just not in the corporate culture. So there are supportive behavior styles. There's authoritative, you know, there's inquisitive, nurturing, and things like that. So I can tell you one of the biggest things, I'll just speak for myself and the lessons that I learned. I can't speak for everybody. Number one is empathy. Empathy didn't exist. That word never existed in my vocabulary in the military for the most part. You could ask my three teenage boys that today. They probably would still tell you the same thing. But I had to learn that really quickly in the corporate world. Number two would be listening. Going back to that type A personality, you're taught to solve problems quickly for obvious reasons. You know, even though you're in a leadership position in the corporate world, doesn't mean you have to solve the problem. In fact, it's better if you don't solve the problem. Okay, let your team solve the problem. You're there to provide them direction. You're there to provide them guidance, and you're there to remove obstacles for them. And then you're there to celebrate, you know, their successes with them and then help them grow as a team and help them grow individually because they too have career aspiration goals. You know, it's not always like that in the military. A lot, a lot, a lot of it's like, if you're good, you'll make it. If you're not, well, then you won't. And that's probably the system taking care of itself. That's just not how that works in the corporate world. So, I, you know, I would tell you the first six to eight months that I worked at Mutual, you could ask any of my peers or probably those who work for me today. There was probably a couple of times like, oh, he's not going to make it. I can, I can tell you right now. I would say, why, why can't we do this? Well, uh, we can't do that for this reason because the business, I'm like, the business, they get a vote? Uh, yeah, the business makes the money and they get a big vote. <laughs> so you had a, a mentorship relationship in our prior conversation, if I remember right, it was eight months, 12 months, somewhere in there where, where you were getting sort of feedback on... I assume a lot of different topics, but it wasn't, you weren't working there yet. So how frequently would you meet and what are the kinds of things you'd go over? Like, what are you, what are you doing in that, in that window of time? That's a great question. So that goes back to that Excel with the mentor program I talked about earlier, but essentially we met once a month and 
after my first meeting, because I'd never been through any experience like that, I quickly figured out, going back to what I knew in that type A personality, that I was going to have to drive the conversation. That individual wasn't there to spoon feed me anything. And I did not want to waste that individual's time because they were an executive at a Fortune 500 company. So with that, after our very first meeting, I quickly realized, okay, we're going to meet once a month and I'm going to have an agenda. And in that agenda, I'm going to send it to him probably two weeks ahead of time. And these are the things I want to get out of our next session. So I drove that relationship because I knew a lot of things that I didn't know that he probably, that individual probably had. So he would fill in things that wouldn't even be on, on our agenda, but I had to start somewhere. Like, so a prime example would be, let's start with the resume. This is, you know, Al, this is, this is what my resume looks like. Can you take a look at that? And he'd give me pointers, but he also would take that back to the HR department while I was still in the military. And they would redline it for me and, and bring it back. And anybody that's gone through this process, that's about to go through this process, I'm telling you that's the worst part of the transition. Figuring out how to write that people understand you, especially coming from a world where you live in acronyms and, and that's not how that works in the in the corporate world. Yeah, no, I just think that it's I'm fascinated by it, especially that you can say mentorship, you can you can use these terms, but it means it's a little bit different in every situation. And so when I knew that it was part of a program you were doing, I knew you were meeting with an executive, the CISO, but I think it's describing what you did and what you framed out as helpful for the listener to think about what they might need. You know, they don't know what they don't know, right? And so you took the initiative and say, okay, well, let's have an agenda, but driving toward the goals of, so let me ask it another way. If you were to write four, five, six bullets and say, at the end of a mentoring agreement, whatever shape or form, whatever, however it comes about, if there's someone who'll spend time with you, an executive at a company, and you were in the, the position that Jason was in five, six years ago, at the end of that, a success looks like what? What are the four, five, six things that what is, and it's not getting a job. But what are those five or six things that success looks like? You mentioned resume. You mentioned no jargon. What are some other things that you'd add to that list? Yep. So if I had to rip off a list of things that you want to get out of a mentorship program, transitioning to the corporate world, it'd be resume writing skills, how to uh, negotiate compensation. You don't do that in the military. That's not how that works. <laughs> Understanding uh, corporate culture and just asking basic questions like, what if I have an employee that comes to me and tells me, you know, I don't like you, and I think you suck as a boss. You probably handled that a certain way in the military. Trust me, you're going to handle that much differently in the corporate world. So things like that. Uh, leadership. What does leadership look like in the corporate world versus uh, what you know, what you've seen you know, in the military? And then I think the last thing is probably, uh, you know, depending on your goals and what level you're entering the corporate world. And for me, it was about planning. I was very in tune and very good at tactical level and strategic planning within the DOD that does not directly correlate to how people plan in the, in the corporate world. I knew I was going into some type of management position and I need to understand those facts. So, you know, planning and budgeting and things like that. So those would probably be the big ones I would probably uh, hit on. That can be, you know, having a two or three year plan, decomposing that into sort of successful objects that require yeah no i think that's i think that's people struggle with that i mean having a way to 
unpack a vision and or a two-year, three-year strategy and then work that back into budget requests and how to write those up into something that uh, finance and the ELT will understand. That's a learned skill too. I mean, that's a, there, I mean, there's, there's people that have been on the civilian side that still don't have that nailed, I assure you. Um, but how to, how to translate. And I've seen many people, I've said this on the show before, that are ready to spend a million dollars on something and cannot articulate the problem they're trying to solve in, in clear language. So there's, there's even a translation that goes from the technical CISO up to executive leadership. Even above that, I think there's education there too. I appreciate you sharing that list. I think that's a good, he said, culture, resume, negotiation, a salary. That's one I've actually never heard. I never thought of. Leadership in the corporate world. And then, yeah, planning on the security program. Negotiation. You almost have to have an insider for that in some ways, right? You almost have to have a, a maybe a series of people that you trust to get feedback on that. Because that's a, if you've never had to think about salary, how the hell would you negotiate a comp package? Correct. A lot of those skills, it may be different now, but when I went through a transition, you know, none of that was taught. So negotiating a compensation package is extremely important. And trust me, you'll want to know the pitfalls. I made some mistakes when I first came to Mutual. I, I can tell you right now, I didn't need, I didn't need a, a medical package from them. Why would I need that? Like I'm a retired Marine. I, I have that for, for the rest of my life kind of thing. I tried to negotiate that because I thought that was the right thing to do. And HR is like, that's not how it works here. So I took that as gospel. Come to find out after I get hired and I'm talking to my, my boss, who I actually work for, right? He, he's like, why didn't you just tell me that? I'm like, I didn't know I could tell you that. I was dealing with some HR middleman, right? And he's like, oh, no, we do that all the time. <laughs> That's an amazing example. And it, couldn't, it could be something else. It could be time off. It could be dollars for education. It could be whatever, right? I mean, everything's, I think the thing, the message is for those listening, everything's negotiable. Now you've been CISO since April. You've had this transition. You started off. You didn't start off as the CISO. You worked your way up. First off, how does that feel? You know, I set a goal when I came to Mutual, and it's very humbling, and I'm, and I'm very excited about it, but it's also, you know, a little scary. So <clears throat> there's always this saying, be careful what you ask for. And in the past couple of weeks, that's come true a couple of times, right? I did. I, I basically, I set a goal for myself. Not only mutual, but like when I retired. So the first goal I said was two years. I'm going to go into the corporate world. I'm going to give it two years. If I can't make it, then I guess I'll tuck my tail between my legs and go back to DOD and, you know, find a job in DOD and give back to my comfort zone. So I made it past the first goal. I was a mid-level manager when I came to mutual in the information security program, working directly for the CISO. So after I got past that goal, then the next goal was, okay, I want to position myself that I can influence more of this program and not just my team. So I started finding ways to do that. And I did that successfully. So then the next goal was, okay, well, I'm quite certain that the CISO is not going to be here forever. So what are some of the things that I need to do to make sure if I go through some type of hiring process for that job, I basically take all the doubts and reasons for them to say no away. And the only one truly left that I had not completed was a master's degree in cybersecurity. I had a master's degree from the military, but it, it was not applicable <laughs> to what I do today. And I knew I had all the knowledge. You know, I, I had a certification. I just didn't have the actual degree and, and a qualification. 
So I bit that bullet, uh, and that happened right about the same time uh, COVID uh, kicked in and they kicked everybody out of the building. So I took on that and, you know, got a uh, master's degree in cybersecurity. And during that time, I was also chosen for, there's a program at our company for uh, advanced leaders. And you don't apply for it. You just kind of get chosen for it. Someone nominates you, and and that's an 18-month-long program. So I was doing that and, and completing my master's at the same time while I was still you know, doing my job. So when all that was said and done, it was probably about eight months later that the, the boss uh, announced his retirement and all the deck chairs just kind of fell into place. So that's that's what that looked like. That's perfect. No, that that's great. I, I, I would imagine that you had to really pour on some extra coal, as they used to say, in that period of time between that leadership program, grad work, and getting ready. I will say, if you're in the right program for master's in cybersecurity, I enjoyed, I loved mine. I loved that program. It was not work to me. I loved every class I had. It was very enjoyable, uh, great fun. And so for me, it was work, but it, it wasn't stressful. Uh, did you, how'd you feel like when you went through yours? Yeah, I think that I'd been doing it for so long. You know, I found a lot of probably the introductory things, you know, quite trivial, which is probably understandable, right? I mean, if I was, someone just coming out of college, getting into the space, you know, it'd be different. But I will tell you, to your point, there was a couple classes that I truly enjoyed and I never thought I would. So one of those, an elective I took, which which was basically security education, training and awareness, CETA, right? Information security awareness. And I figured, oh, this is going to be boring, right? Because typically, you know, because, and, and I've been in that world, like I've had to lead those programs before. And it's all about corporate culture, right? And they're like, here we go. Here are the InfoSec people talking about passwords again. And don't click on phishing emails, right? So, but the way that the instructor taught the course was not about, not through a cybersecurity lens, but through an actual psychology lens and specifically around changing corporate culture when it comes to that. So, and I'm not here to make plugs for books. That's not my thing. But when I saw the book for the class, I'm like, holy cow, I gotta, this is going to be a boring topic and I got to read like 300 pages. And I quickly found out that the book was extremely uh, beneficial. The name of the book is called Transformational Security Awareness, What Neuroscientists, Storytellers, and Marketers Can Teach Us About Driving Secure Behaviors. That's the name of the book. And when I was done with my academic program and got my degree, like everybody else, you kind of go through this purge of, yeah, I don't need that material. I don't need that material. So I kept about five or six actual textbooks and sold the rest back, right? That was one of the books I kept. And I have it tabbed, I have it highlighted. And now I lean on my my seat at a team and I'm, you know, with different portions of that book to say, look, we need to get to the root cause of why we have some of the uh, obstacles we have. And a lot of those things and those answers are in this book, I'm telling you. So to your point, yes, I agree with you. Transformational security awareness. I had to repeat that just because I'm going to have to check that out. Correct. Yeah. What neuroscientists, storytellers, and marketers can teach us about driving secure behaviors. Correct. Interesting. I am going to check that out. So, yeah, I'm not trying to, I don't know this book, and I don't think Jason's going to get a dollar for everyone that gets purchased. But no, I have to check that out. It's a fairly recent book, but I appreciate that recommendation. And actually, to that end, we are at time. I could continue this conversation. I've got 11 other questions I haven't asked you, but uh, this is ripped by. I, I just want to say, first off, congratulations in the relatively new position. I, 
I always love hearing when, you know, mentorship and career progression goes, goes right. And it's exciting to hear. I wouldn't, it's on a new chapter, but it's kind of a new chapter, at least a new position within this. So first off, congratulations. And next, thank you for taking time with us and, and doing the brain dump you did. We appreciate it. And I want to close on one, one question that we ask everyone pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, which is generally a philosophical question, but in this case, it's a little more literal. But uh, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you, uh, Jason? Well, first, I want to thank you for having me on the program this morning. I I truly appreciate it and truly enjoyed the dialogue we had here today. To answer your question about the, the new CISO, I guess for me, I wanted the ability to set and define a direction in the corporate world. I've done that in the military. I, it's, a, it's a new task and new obstacle for me in the corporate world. But really, I think we're at a juncture for many things in our space. If it's not, you know, how do we get to a pass, passless word environment? These are very difficult discussions to have, given the regulatory compliance oversight that, that many companies face. You know, many of us are just beginning that journey towards uh, zero trust concepts and frameworks. There's a lot of work to be done there. Many companies are migrating to the cloud, and some of that is being forced upon them a little quicker than, than they anticipated because of the hybrid remote work due, due to the pandemic, and also dealing with the war for talent. So these are just some of the key tenets and obstacles that, that I saw w- when I decided to, to take on this role and apply for this role that I thought I could provide uh, a little bit of strategic direction around. But really, for me, it, it's truly about giving back, giving back to my company giving back to our associates, and um, continuing my leadership journey. I, I think I, I mentioned here in the program that leadership is never over. You're, you're never done, and you're never perfect. So continuing to hone those skills and passing those on to others that are, will come behind and make it even better uh, once I leave. So with that, I guess uh, I would say thank you, and I truly appreciate our time here this morning. Thank you so much, Jason. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.